I think I had a similar experience as you guys, I guess maybe as many students do, but I was at seminary and at the time I was a janitor in the library and I would put on my Walkman. For you youngsters out there, that's a <laughs> yellow device that plays music on these plastic things called cassettes. I was listening to R.C. Sproul tapes and I was listening to a lot of his, not the more popular stuff, which is edifying, but it was he had a lot of lectures on historical theology and philosophy and all of this other stuff. I was getting that as I cleaned the library at night. And then in class, I was getting the contemporary picture with a full court press. My professor, in two years of classes, never brought his Bible to class, but he always brought a copy of Clark Pinnock's The Openness of God to class. So it, it was a full court press and it was all Moltmann and Paul Fetus, the creative suffering of God, and it was just all of this stuff. And so I was getting it from both sides. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Today is the start of a new series of episodes, and we are calling these episodes the Credo Alliance, the Credo Alliance, because we are bringing together some of today's best theologians, and we're bringing them together to really discuss and to unite and to encourage classical theism or classical theology. Some of them you probably know because they are Credo Fellows, and you have had the chance to hear them before. Our goal is really simple, but we hope also inspiring to you. It's to encourage the next generation to retrieve classical Christianity and all of its beauty for the sake of Reformation today. In this first episode, I have with me Fred Sanders, who's at Tory at Biola University out in California. I also have J.V. Fesco, who is with RTS and theologian that's joined the Credo podcast before. And I can't fail to mention the one and only Scott Swain, also RTS president there. And hey, I am so excited to have the four of us come together like this. I don't think we've done this before. I've had conversations with each of you, but I think this is the first time all four of us have been together. And as long as this stack of books behind Fred here doesn't collapse, I think we'll be in for a good conversation. Which perhaps the best way to start this conversation is maybe on a more personal note. I've sometimes shared with students who are maybe interested in classical theism, but maybe still a little suspicious. Sometimes I have found the best way to start with them is just to talk about my own story. Who I read or who was it, alive or dead, that, that first influenced me or, or opened my eyes to just a whole another paradigm that I had not considered before, as you all look back on your life, what was it exactly that first influenced you? Or maybe it wasn't one thing, maybe it was many things that influenced you, or maybe even opened your eyes to the beauty of classical theism. 
I, I don't know whether to consider myself atypical in this regard, but my graduate training was outside of the evangelical world. So I was at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley and obsessed with the Trinity from very early on and trying to get my bearings in the Trinitarian conversation of the late 20th century. I always assumed that my contribution as an evangelical speaking within a broader world would be that I would be the gospel and Bible person speaking for my tribe, representing what I value about evangelicalism. I thought, okay, Trinity conversation happening. I'll be the one who's constantly bringing it back to sola scriptura, Trinitarianism, and to the gospel connection. What I came to find out as I got further into that conversation in the broader world is that there was a kind of the excitement about Trinitarian theology in the late 20th century was largely driven by a kind of revisionism that was, if anything, too practically oriented and was trying to get some distance from all sorts of metaphysical commitments in Trinitarian language. So I'm still a Bible and gospel person, and in some ways that's going to be my main contribution to the overall conversation. But what I discovered in reading the classic primary texts and then the later 20th century commentary and interaction with them was that we needed to pay a lot more attention to the earlier voices and to recapture their ability to speak metaphysically about the nature of God. Somewhere there late in my graduate education and early in my teaching career, I had to kind of retool. And while continuing to really focus on exegesis and gospel and practical theology, really bring on board some of what is now being called classical theism, but especially in the doctrine of the Trinity. So a surprising turn in my career. Yeah. I, for me, one of the first theologians I really got excited about in seminary days was Athanasius and his book on the Incarnation. And I think that would eventually push me towards caring about the doctrine of the Trinity as a an academic research topic. But I don't think at that time I had an awareness that Athanasius, what he was saying about the doctrine of God necessarily was different than maybe other things I had heard. So I think what really first got me interested in traditional Christian teaching on the being and attributes of God, traditional Christian teaching on the Trinity was the early days of Herman Bavink translation. So I think this came out as I was coming to the end of my seminary days, but before the Reformed dogmatics were translated as four volumes, one or two part volumes were published by Baker. Y'all may remember these, they had the yeah. white paperback covers. And <laughs> I read these, I consumed these and quickly realized that there's something different going on here. And I knew I wanted to understand better what Bavink was talking about. And then when I started my PhD program, one of the next steps for me, because I knew to stay away from people like Thomas Aquinas, he was Roman Catholic. So I think one of the next steps for me was I went to the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society as a brand new PhD student. And now I'm drawing a blank on his name, but one of the gentlemen who worked at the booth for Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing, it oftentimes they would say, if you leave us your business card or whatever, when we are done at the end of the week, we're going to give away whatever books are left. And so I left mine with the request for Francis Turretin's Institutes of Elinctic Theology. And so I scored the institutes for free as a first or second year doctoral student. And 
I think the rest is history after that point. Bobbing had introduced me, but then Triton brought me the rest of the way. I think I had a similar experience as you guys, I guess maybe as many students do, but I was at seminary and at the time I was a janitor in the library and I would put on my Walkman. For you youngsters out there, that's a <laughs> yellow device that plays music on these plastic things called cassette. I was listening to R.C.'s Sproul tapes and I was listening to a lot of his, not the more popular stuff, which is edifying, but it was he has a lot of lectures on historical theology and philosophy and all of this other stuff. I was getting that as I cleaned the library at night. And then in class, I was getting the contemporary picture with a full court press. My professor in two years of classes never brought his Bible to class, but he always brought a copy of Clark Pinnock's The Openness of God to class. So it, it was a full court press and it was all Moltmann and Paul Fetus, The Creative Suffering of God. And it was just all of this stuff. And so I was getting it from both sides. I and think I used to work with this gentleman, actually. <laughs> now that yeah, you, I, you may have. And, uh, and boy, as I would naturally compare what I was hearing and then go study the Bible and look at these things and then do extra reading and stuff, I, I thought, I think that the classical picture that Sproul presents, quoting people like a Turretin or Aquinas or what have you, made sense. And it, it, it explained the Bible a whole lot better. And one of the things that I remember thinking was when they said, oh, God suffers with you. I was like, what good does that suffering do me if he doesn't do anything for me? It just seemed at the end of the day, empty. And as hard as they tried to drive me into the sheep pen of that school of thought, the classical theist pulled me in. That, that way of pitching divine passability can be attractive sometimes, but it quickly turns to it. It sounds like we're both in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was hoping one of us had a solution to this problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. John, were you listening to a lot of Amy Grant on those? I wasn't, but maybe some Michael W. Smith. Oh. See, I knew it. <laughs> may, I may or may not confirm that there may have been some striper thrown in there. Oh, man. Hard you know, sword. I was thinking if it's story time with Grandpa, I was thinking about those. Back in our day, we didn't even have fun Maastricht. All we had was Turretin, and we liked it. <laughs> That's right. It was we, we still got pious. Yeah, yeah. Turretin is, in some ways, so unattractive as a Protestant scholastic. It's definitely meat and potatoes, and if you've been eating mush, you're like, yes, this is the stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But if you can put them in a larger context with the more translations that are now available to us, yeah. you can realize, yeah, this was not the most attractive yeah. <laughs> first encounter with that tradition. Yeah, I tell my students, reading Turretin is important, it's necessary, but it's eating chunky peanut butter on white bread with no milk. It doesn't go down smooth. <laughs> and the other thing is people were also trying to tell us that Jonathan Edwards was the kind of gold standard of traditional yeah. theism and think I've learned now that may not quite be true. Yeah, there's the side of Edwards that is channeling to you from Maastricht and company. Yeah. Uh, with no footnotes, usually. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the strange creative side where no one's quite sure yeah. what he's doing or what to make of it. Heavy yeah. doses of mechanistic philosophy in there. Yeah. Scott, you are, you're going to just cry, I think, when you hear this. But when I was tr going from college to seminary, there was a pastor out there who heard I was going to stick with being a Baptist. And... <laughs> No kidding. 
he turns around and he holds up Francis Turton's Institutes. <laughs> he says, here, just read this. Take this. <laughs> and uh, I think I disappointed him in the end, obviously. But I can say that meat and potatoes, I did devour those as well. Wish I would have had a little mel- milk, John. <laughs> but those have been just pro. Uh, I keep going back to them, usually when I just need to know the answer to something. And it's interesting, Scott, you mentioned Edwards, right? Was that a, because I know for some people, even to even now, right, they may hear this as a bit of a crisis in their life because they've been taught Edwards is the gold standard. Was that a crisis for you or was it more of a slow realization? The first crisis I remember with Jonathan Edwards was being in the bathroom of my dorm at seminary reading religious affections and wondering if I had really experienced any of those. Uh When we did Freedom of the Will in my doctoral program, somewhere along the way read The End for Which God Created the World. And I don't think I had any major crises to that because again, back in those days, if you had kind of like a four views, five views book, on the God-world relation or predestination and free will or whatever it might have been, whoever presented what was supposed to be the view representing my camp, the Reformed view, would have presented more or less Edwards' view. Hmm. And so it's much later that I realized, oh, wow, Edwards, even in his day, Reformed folks were saying, hey, there's something different going on here. And now we, we are beneficiaries of probably a good decade and a half of serious scholarship showing where some of those divergences are. So I wouldn't have even known to have a conflict about Edwards on those things. Hi, friends. This is Matthew Barrett. We are taking a break from our conversation on the Credo podcast because I have some exciting news to share with you. I am the director of the Center for Classical Theology. And this November, November 13th to to be exact, the evening before ETS, Uh, We will have our kickoff inaugural lecture in San Antonio, Texas. To deliver that lecture, we have asked Carl Truman to give an address called Why We Need Classical Theology Now More Than Ever. I hope you will join me for this lecture. And you can register by going to uh, credomag.com. There you will find a page for the Center of Classical Theology which will tell you all about Carl Truman, when the lecture will take place, and how you can register today. Yeah, and Fred, I just have to ask, because your story is so fascinating. I think a lot of us went to evangelical schools. Your story is so different, given the context of, I mean, such a wider environment. Um, I can't remember if it's you or John that was mentioning Moltmann or passability and a suffering God. As you look back, Fred, now you mentioned the Trinity and how you started to discover, okay, maybe this is a bit more of a revisionist mm-hmm. Trinity that I've been latching onto or just being taught. Is as, as you started to turn, maybe do a 180, who was it? Was it was not contemporary theologians, but I mean, was it a certain church father? Was it a certain medieval theologian? Was it a certain creed? What what really put the nail in the coffin to say, oh, wow, this is actually a very different trinity yeah. than what I've been being? 
Yeah. And I should say before I went to the GTU, I did get an MDiv, a long MDiv at Asbury Theological Seminary and had a lot of good things happen there. And that's within the evangelical orbit. But we were reading Moltmann in the theology classes. And I think that was pretty widespread. So the first book that really lit my fire on Trinitarian theology, like I had biblical and even spiritual reasons for caring about the Trinity. I invented the doctrine of the Trinity on my own at age 16, reading Ephesians. So if people tell me it's not in the Bible, I think I'll be polite about your statement there. But like I, back when I didn't know nothing, I just read it in the Ephesians and thought there it is. So I, I had all that. But then in terms of like graduate education, it was Moltmann and Trinity and the Kingdom just blew my mind. Now think the opposite of everything on every page of that book. But I remain grateful that Moltmann had this sort of passion and engagement and really handled it like it mattered. And that kind of gave me a vision for the way the doctor could at least be valued. So then you go down that trail. Catherine Lacuna's book was coming out right around that time that I was immersed in all the, all that literature. And I was heavily invested in Pannenberg. And while his systematic theology was coming out in English, so I was kind of like watching it unspool as it went from volume one to volume two. And just here and there, you'd pick up a voice of someone almost crankily pointing out that this was all very different. The same kind of point that Steve Holmes makes ultimately in his book much later. But there are always some sort of like retrograde sounding conservative voices, both Protestant and Catholic, saying, all of this is radically revisionist from what we have always said until about 1960. Or maybe you could go 1820 or something like that, but, but certainly not much older. And so for me, it was really Augustine. When I finally set aside a month of my life to just pound through on the Trinity in my doctoral work, that, that was what kind of turned the corner for me. Partly because the rough handling of Augustine by the modern Trinitarian Renaissance authors is really astonishing. Even authors who I learned a lot from and value in, a, in an ongoing way, Colin Gutton, who when he's good can be very good. But his handling of Augustine is like famously horrible. Like everyone backs off and says, stop, just stop talking about him. You don't have to say things about Augustine. You could just ignore him if you don't like him. So turning to the primary text, the contrast between what people say you're going to find in Augustine and what you actually find in Augustine was really eye-opening for me. And it Without making me a conspiracy theorist, it did make me look around and say, what else have I been lied to about? Uh, yeah. I've gotten to just stuck with Coleridge, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah, Colin Gunton's creative doctrinal energy is just wonderful and stimulating and all that. But the historical theology stuff is baffling. Yeah, Fred, I really resonate with what you said. When I look back very early on, it was Augustine, his confessions in particular, it it turned my whole world upside down. I think for a lot of reasons. One is here he is modeling theology in a way that I just not seen by anyone. And so that itself was irresistible. But as soon as I started to probe into confessions and almost immediately the way he starts to contemplate God, he doesn't say it, but this is classical theism coming through in a very, very beautiful rhetoric, of course, but in a very careful way at the same time. And then I would say, yeah, I, I mean, later, if I had to say, what is it that took you even deeper beyond the surface? I think one of the books would be Augustine on the Trinity. I think at that point I realized there is a world of difference between a type of Nicene Trinitarianism, East and West, and what I was just reading. I too read Moltmann and I just thought only one of these men can be right. So that was instrumental for me. Yeah. yeah. Matthew, I could jump in there. 
the thing about Augustine, it, because I had the same experience in terms of turning the corner on some of these things with him. The thing about Augustine is when you read De Trin, you actually can pretty early on understand what it means to be pro-Nicene yes. in your Trinitarian theology, even if you don't know that label. Yeah. Like he kind of lays down the rules pretty quickly. And I think persuasively shows you that's the biblical way to read about the Trinity. Yeah. And so it's it's almost as complex as that book can be in some ways. It's also a very quick on-ramp. Yes. Once you've been persuaded, you're kind of like, okay, now I'm on, I guess, the team that <laughs> everyone said was the baddies. <laughs> but I think they're right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's something for everyone, right? Because Fred, you mentioned about the Bible. Augustine, in many ways, to your point, Scott, Augustine is, he's taking you right to the scriptures, but it's almost as if, at least for me, it was a whole new way of interpreting the scriptures than I had been taught. And yeah, I don't want to be conspiracy theory, but it was, I had not read Ephesians that way before. And suddenly I'm sitting down side by side with Augustine and he's showing me things that I had just overlooked completely. But then, like you said, Scott, it was more than that. It wasn't just a Nicene hermeneutic, which was crucial, but it was even, by the time you finish it, he's in his own very creative way, he's putting everything together. It's difficult to walk away from that book and not have a very robust understanding of everything from, say, eternal generation to inseparable operations. Yeah. Let me throw out a closing question for all of you, and it's this. There are many entry points into the world of classical theism. We could name so many, right? Some may come in through an exploration of natural theology or proofs for the existence of God, maybe if they're in philosophy, perhaps, or some, it's the divine perfections, or as I've heard from some of you, the Nicene Trinitarianism could be eschatology, could be you know a participation in the beatific vision. I mean, there's so many entry points. All of you are professors, you're experienced teachers, what have you found? This could be very practical in terms of pedagogy. What have you found to be a persuasive way of just bringing someone in? What door do you typically default to? If you just have to pick one or two doors, which door are you going to go through first to, to maybe show someone not just the nuts and bolts, but even the beauty of classical theism and its coherence? I think for me, I would probably lock on to transcendence. And I want to be fair to the contemporary Trinitarians that we've been leveling our critique at, is that I don't want to say that they have absolutely no concept of transcendence. But if you pick up an Augustine or you pick up a Turretin, Aquinas, I think they really capture the biblical concept of transcendence in a way that I think a lot of the contemporary Trinitarians don't. I almost... I don't know, maybe the people will say shots fired after I say this, but I almost feel like Werbach characterizes maybe more so contemporary Trinitarianism. And that's one of the things that I just, I don't find it persuasive or biblical in that regard. Whereas when you read about the transcendence of God, and then, you know, you, you can eventually segue, obviously, to the eminence and the incarnation. I think you hold those two together and it paints a very powerful biblical picture of, of who God is. So again, within Trinitarianism, it was the main thing I was looking at. 
this can sound dismissive, but the strong sense of divine unity, so much energy, I want to say squandered in modern Trinitarianism, especially of the social variety and emphasizing perichoresis is like, oh, God is one because the three mutually indwell each other. And that's so pervasive in the literature and so exciting when people discover it, like it's a cool Greek word and it sounds, it's true and it sounds really neat, but to use that mutual indwelling to ground divine unity itself, it's just like, I, that's too late. That unity comes too late in what you're thinking about. You've got to start, this is the part that sounds super simplistic, but you got to start with the Old Testament and God is one. And then within that, for reasons of revelation, come to understand the relational thing that is going on within that divine oneness. But it's got to start with a strong commitment to the oneness of God um, that then unfolds into an understanding of Trinitarianism. And then you get to perichoresis in its proper place. So that, and then also the best doctrine with the worst name, divine aseity. <laughs> Just what it's something like the transcendence that the John mentioned, but it's something like once you really get a grasp of the fact that God is not from another, not caused by anything anterior to God, but it's just, it allows you to be theocentric in the proper sense, like, like break out of your own orbit and begin. I love when non-professional theologians, just like normal Christians who love to think about God and the Bible, try to put this in words. They're not going to come up with the word aseity. Like I say, it's a terrible English word. It's like still half Latin. It hasn't, hasn't fully naturalized its way into our language, but, but they'll just wave their hands and say, and then I came to understand this big God theology. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, yeah, I feel you. Yeah, that's yeah. In, in terms of entry points, one thing that I think has sort of dawned on me, even the last few years is just how important both Jesus baptism and then the baptismal command in Matthew 28, 19 is as an entry point. Uh, and it's clear that's how Augustine starts De Trin. I just read Andrew Ruddy Galwitz's great book on Gregory of Nyssa's Trinitarian writings, and he makes the same point that Matthew 28, 19 for Gregory is like this foundation that he keeps coming back to in all theological argument. And I think I think that's a great, there's a lot of wisdom in realizing what's happening there. It connects to some things that Fred has emphasized through the years and not only in Deep Things of God, but other places, just that the doctrine of the Trinity is right there at the heart of our faith, right? You've got the practice of baptism, you've got the Great Commission, you've got really the DNA of the rule of faith, and then you've got the strong emphasis on the oneness of God there, one name that three shares. So that's become a really important entryway for me in terms of trying to help people see the biblical foundation of this, because at the end of the day, that's what I'm persuaded of, and that's what I want to persuade others as well. But the other piece, and I think this is related to the transcendence theme and big God theology, I'm not necessarily crazy about the label classical theism, but what that label, at least by its critics, meant to suggest was that traditional Christian teaching about God was not just teaching about the Bible, but it was also teaching about philosophy and that it was drawing on ancient philosophical resources. And I do think at the end of the day, it's you have to help people understand what the tradition is doing with philosophy in the doctrine of God. 
And what I've come, I think, more fully to appreciate is that if you think, if you take this phrase in the Nicene Creed regarding the Son, He's begotten, not made. It's a really important way of you know describing His relation to the Father. I think what early Christians do with philosophy is they come to more clearly understand in light of biblical teaching about God the creator and the nature of creation, to understand the world is made, not begotten. And when you start taking that very seriously, it starts doing all kinds of things with ancient philosophy, right? And so while the fathers are using philosophical tools in the doctrine of God, they're having to bend them in new ways in order to honor the kind of radical divine transcendence that is implied in the idea that the world is made, not begotten. And so helping people understand the biblical foundation, but then also helping them understand kind of the revolution and philosophy that comes with early Christian thinking about God on the basis of the Bible. I think those are two important entry points. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.